Today is the anniversary of uh, an event we know as Palm Sunday. It was the time that Jesus rode into Jerusalem proclaiming himself as king. The first time he ever did that. The only time he has ever done that. And this is a significant event because Jesus held the, the Jews accountable for knowing that very day. And this morning we're going to look at that again because there is a prophecy in Daniel that is perhaps one of the most remarkable prophecies in the Bible concerning the end times, and we will look at it. Um, in, in brevity, of course, there, we, could, we could spend quite a bit of time, but for the sake of time, we will look at it briefly. But they call it Palm Sunday today because as Jesus was coming down through the valley from the Mount of Olives, which is on the east side of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, there's a valley between them, and that's the Kidron Valley. As Jesus was coming down from the Mount of Olives, going down into the valley, going into Jerusalem, riding a, a colt, a, a, a colt, a, a young male donkey. And as he was going, you recall, and we'll read this in a few moments, they, they shouted, Hosanna. Blessed be, uh, Hosanna to the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And as, he, as they sang that, they also put palm fronds before him. And in the east, the near east, it was customary to cover the ground of those important people. As they would travel, they would often put palm fronds or, or things of uh, branches. They would lay them down in their path as, a, as a, a sign of honor, somebody who is worthy. And the branch is a, and the frond is a symbol of triumph and victory. And so Jesus' disciples did that as he came into Jerusalem and with the palm fronds. So that's why they call it Palm Sunday, the very day that was prophesied of Daniel five or six hundred years prior. The very day was prophesied. And Jesus would spend the next week going through what we call the Passion Week, where he would be unjustly arrested, crucified, resurrected on the third day. And ultimately, he would ascend into heaven. And we await for his return. Are you looking forward to his return? Yes. I like that, an emphatic yes. Not even just a yes, but a yes. And you know, that's the enthusiasm we ought to have. I don't know about you, but I'm ready. There's nothing on the earth that holds me here any longer. There's no event that I'm waiting for more than that one event, to see Jesus face to face. Amen? So this was the first time that Jesus presented himself in, as king. In John chapter 6, verse 15, you'll recall after the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, it says that therefore when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. He didn't receive the idea of him being king. It wasn't the right time. There was a specific time that he would do it, and he would allow it. In fact, he would orchestrate it. But until that moment, he slipped out of the scene. He did not want to be heralded as the king until the right moment he would receive that. And again, this is the Sunday prior to his death and resurrection. And prior to Matthew 21 that we're looking at this morning, Jesus had told his disciples on at least three occasions, they're recorded for us all in the book of Matthew, 
He told them that he would rise, that he would be actually be put to death. He'd be crucified, but that he would rise the third day. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, he also told them in Matthew 17, verse 22, but let me read to you the final time because it's the chapter right before the one we're looking at now in Matthew 20, verse 17. It says, now Jesus going up to Jerusalem because he had come from Galilee and he was down by Jericho and he made the ascent to go up to Jerusalem. And if you go to Jerusalem with us or go to Israel, you'll, you'll know that when you're down there by Jericho, there, there's a plain there in the, in the valley, uh, uh, right in, in between there, the Jordan Valley. Right next to the mountain area, there's the town of Jericho, and the bus will take an old road that's been there for ages and ages and ages, and now they've just paved it. And we take the bus all the way up to Jerusalem, up to Mount Zion. And Jesus was on that road. So now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside on the road, and he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, because wherever you're going in, in Israel to, to Jerusalem, you're always going up, because it's a higher elevation. It's not necessarily north, it just means an elevation, okay? So we are going to Jerusalem, Jesus said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to, uh, to the chief priests and to the scribes, and notice, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge him and, and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. And I love the fact that Jesus, the good shepherd, doesn't a good shepherd go before the sheep and prepare the ground, prepare the meadow where they are going to be grazing? He looks for poisonous things. He looks for adequate water supplies. He's always looking out for the sheep. And Jesus, as he is preparing for his death, and his ultimate departure, he's preparing his disciples. That's what a good shepherd does. He prepares. And that's what Jesus did to his disciples. Three times he told them, even though they didn't really quite understand it. And we'll look at his death, certainly this Friday, as we celebrate Good Friday. It's good for us, not so good for him. And of course, on Sunday morning, the resurrection. But after this triumphal entry that we're going to look at, this morning, and the prophecy concerning it. Within that week of time, Jesus would cleanse the temple the second and the last time. He would contend and he would rebuke the chief priests and the Pharisees for their hardness of heart and unbelief. He would deliver the Olivet Discourse to his disciples concerning the end time events. He would be betrayed by Judas he would celebrate the Passover one last time in that upper room. We call it the Last Supper. And after the Last Supper, he instituted what we call communion, as Jesus would tell them about his body that would be broken and his blood that would be shed for them. He would then be wrongfully arrested, arraigned, and crucified. And on the third day, he would rise again, all within this very short span of time. So let's look at Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now when they drew near, Jesus and his disciples, and they came to Bethpage, which is at the Mount of Olives. Remember, the Mount of Olives is on the east side of the Temple Mount, and in between is the, the Kidron Valley. And it says, Then Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me, Jesus here demonstrating his omniscience. He knew in advance these animals and where they would be, and he told his disciples to go. And they did. 
And I love what Mark's gospel said about the, this donkey or this, these two donkeys, and he would sit on one. And Mark's gospel says that he said that uh, on which no, man, no one has sat this colt. Has anybody sat on a horse or a colt, a male horse that hasn't been gelded yet? Anybody sat on a horse that's never been, ha, ever had a saddle that hasn't been broken yet? Is it a good experience? No, it's the bucking bronco, right? It's a rodeo. <laughs> but notice Jesus sat on this colt upon whom nobody had ever sat before. And we don't see Jesus holding on to the, the bridle and the thing going wild. He had complete control over even animals. And I almost wonder just what was going through that donkey's mind. But Jesus has command over all these things. He has ultimate power and authority over this cult. And every animal, king, every animal in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the kingdom obeys Jesus. All things obey Jesus, except for us. <laughs> except for human beings. We are the rebels. But notice in verse 3, if anyone says to you, says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. And all this was done, notice, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And here, <clears throat> he is quoting from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Zechariah was born in Babylon, and he was a Levite. And this prophecy that Zechariah had, that is quoted for us here in Matthew, was written about 20 years after the fall of Babylon, sometime around 519 B.C. And notice what he says again. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. How more specific could that prophecy be? And how more specific could it be when it was fulfilled? As Jesus told them, go into the city and this is what you're going to see. Bring them to me. Bring them to me. This was known before time. See, that's what sets Christianity apart from all other world religions. As God, who is almighty God, who created all things, can in advance speak things when they haven't occurred yet, and he's 100% spot on. He's never lied. He doesn't need to lie. Because guess what? When you know everything, you don't need to lie. You can just tell it as it is. Wouldn't that be liberating? To know everything, and you're completely liberated to just tell it the way it is. Hey, this is what's going to happen. Write it down, because it's going to happen. And then when it does, I told you so. And that's exactly what we see here. So back in verse 6 in our text, it says, So the disciples went and they did as Jesus commanded them. And they brought the donkey and the colt, and they laid their clothes on them. And he set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. And others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And these were pilgrims who came up with Jesus, no doubt from Galilee, and see, whenever great kings would come into a city, normally when they were coming as a conquering general, they would come in on a stallion, on a horse, as a victor, as a, as a conqueror. But Jesus came in on a donkey. 
There's a day when Jesus will come back as a conquering king. And we looked at that when we looked at Genesis, or excuse me, Revelation 19. Remember, when Jesus comes back to the earth in his second coming, that's going to be him coming back on a white horse. He's coming back as a conquering general, a victor, one to execute judgment on a world that has rejected him. But at this time, very different. He came as the prince of peace. He came as the prince of peace. Wouldn't it be nice to have peace in the days that we're living in? Many of us know that we have the Prince of Peace in our hearts. You may not be experiencing peace right now. Maybe you're going through a variety of different things. Maybe you're struggling with health issues, relationship issues. I would encourage you to go to the one who can help. He is the comforter. He is God Almighty who loves you. Go to him. Run into his arms. Be satisfied in his peace. He is the prince of peace. Amen? But Jesus was rejected even at this triumphal entry, as we call it. He came into Jerusalem, but his own did not receive him. And notice in verse 9, it says, Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed, they cried after, saying, Hosanna! To the son of David. This is a messianic title. There's a handful that knew what this was all about, but most of them did not know. Certainly the town of Jerusalem, the city, when he got in there, they were completely oblivious to what this was all about. There were only a handful that maybe knew about this. And perhaps none of them really did, but they had hopes to throw off the yoke of Rome and have this one, Jesus, to finally rule and reign and, and crush the Roman you know, occupation. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Notice, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, Lord, save now. Save now. And as the Jews would go up to Jerusalem, they would sing a series of psalms. We know them as the Hallel Psalms. Psalms 113 to 118. And this quote that we see here in verse 9 is exactly from that Psalm 118, beginning in verse 22. Let me read it to you. It says, the stone which the builders rejected. Does that sound familiar? That's Jesus. He was the stone. He is the foundation. He is the cornerstone. They rejected him. And and it says, and he has become the chief cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And notice verse 24. I'll read it to you. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now which is what Hosanna means. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, and send now prosperity. In verse 26 of Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Now, as we look at verse 9, I want you to draw a scripture reference in between verse 9 and 10. And here's the reference. Luke 19. Luke chapter 19 verse 39 through 44. Write that in your Bibles right now because that's chronologically what happens next. You remember the Gospels are different accounts, but when they, when they are pieced together, that's what a chronology or a harmony of the Gospel does for you. It puts everything in order. And that's the very next thing that happens after verse 9 is Luke chapter 19, again, verse 39 through 44. And let me read it to you because it's going to lead us right into Daniel's prophecy. 
In Luke chapter 19, verse 39, as some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, notice they're going up, people are laying fronds, they're saying these things, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But the Pharisees said to him from the crowd, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stone should immediately cry out. We've sang the song before. I would have loved them for it to be silent because I bet there'd be a chorus of rocks. And I would have loved to have heard their voices. Probably kind of rough and gravelly, no pun intended. That's right. Now as, Jesus, now as he, Jesus, drew near, he saw the city and noticed he wept over it, saying, if you had known Jerusalem, even you, especially in this, notice, this your day, this your day, the things which make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. They had always rejected him. And again, there was a handful of faithful, but the vast majority of Jerusalem rejected him. And even many of those who were on the road saying Hosanna a few days later would be saying crucify him. You didn't come to do what we wanted you to do. You weren't the Messiah for us. We thought you were going to save us from Rome, but then you die on a cross? You look like you're finished, Jesus. That's not what we wanted. That's not what we wanted. But God's will was something different. He was going to do an even greater thing. He wasn't interested in just saving Jerusalem. Have you looked at a map lately? How small Jerusalem is compared to everything else? He was interested in the, in the world. He wouldn't just save Jerusalem. He would save the entire world, everyone who would be born into it. But notice what he said in, in Luke 19, verse 42. If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things which make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes... For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time. You didn't know the time of your visitation. The place is going to be leveled, and this happened, we know, in 70 A.D., when the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem. I was there last year, uh, about this time, actually, a little earlier, stood upon that pile of rocks. I got a picture of me standing on those rocks that they shoved off the Temple Mount, and there they are today. They've stayed there for all this time. They're still there, folks. They haven't moved them. They just left them there. This prophecy came to pass in 70 AD. But let's go back to verse 41, where he said, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things which make for your peace, but now... They are hidden from your eyes. Now at some point after this, Jesus said to his multitudes, said to the multitude and his disciples, it's recorded for us in Matthew 23, verse 37. Let me read it to you. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. It's an amazing thing to not be willing. God is willing, but sometimes we are not. It was his will to do one thing, but the will of the people was something completely different. And therein lies the problem. That's why my will needs to be broken. Has your will been broken? Have you given up on, on, on the things that you must have for your life? I would encourage you to do that as soon as you can. <laughs> 
And it may take some time for you to be broken. I think I've, I've been broken and I'm continually being broken. It's just a continual process. And re- therein lies the victory. Is yielding to Jesus. I want to yield to him more. Do you want to yield to him? And everything. The natural man does not want to yield to God. He wants his own will done. But God says, the greatest blessing for your life, my son, my daughter, is to yield to my perfect will for your life. I've created you with a purpose. I've got a design for your life. And so far, you've done your own design, but it's not too late. It's never too late. I don't care if you're 80 years old. It's never too late to finally break and say, Lord, even at my ripe old age of 80 or 90, whatever it is, I want to surrender and I want to do. And the Lord's going, great. Because believe me, he can use someone, anyone who's got a heart like that. It may not be big and flashy like you would like it to be, but he's going to reward you for those small things that you do. It's never, ever too late. Never too late. But he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones who are sent, how often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house, this beautiful place, this temple, It is left to you desolate, for I say unto you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus held them accountable for that day. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, this is one of the most significant verses and three verses in all of the Bible. I would encourage you to study this a lot. We call it the 70 weeks of Daniel, and we're going to look at the 69 of those weeks briefly. Notice in Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 24, what does it say? Again, the very key, the very roadmap to all end time prophecy. And and it's specifically what we're celebrating today. That's what makes it so remarkable. Notice in verse 24, 70 weeks, and actually these are weeks of years, folks, not just weeks. Weeks. Weeks of years. Seventy weeks of years are determined for your people, notice the Jews, and for your holy city, which we know as Jerusalem, to do what? To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Verse 25, know therefore and understand that, notice this, this is where our where we're going to spend some time this morning. Know therefore and understand, Daniel, the angel says to Daniel, that from the going forth of the commandment, notice, to restore and to build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. So from this commandment until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks or 69 weeks of years. And notice what he says. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublous times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, or or, or a, a capital punishment. He would die. This prince, whoever this prince is, we know who it is. After the 62 weeks, meaning at, at the end of that 69th week, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself, not because he'd done anything wrong. He died for the sins of the world not because of something that he did. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with a flood till the end of the war. Desolations are determined. 
Now, during the Babylonian captivity of the Jews, there were four decrees that were made. And, and again, this is a little bit of review from last year, but we're going to go in a different area later on. There were four decrees that were given toward the end of their Babylonian captivity, toward the end of their 70-year captivity in Babylon. There were four different decrees by four different leaders, rulers. The first one of Cyrus of Persia around 536 B.C., the second one was from Darius the Mede in 519 B.C. The third was Artaxerxes Longimanus in 458 B.C. And finally, the same issued a fourth decree in 445 B.C. What I'd like to do is take a look at some of these because you remember as we looked at Daniel's prophecy, it says it talked about restoring and building the city and the gates and the street. Not the temple. Do you understand? Not the temple. It's very specific. Restore the city and the walls and the street, even in troublous times. Isn't that what Daniel told us? So we have to look at these four decrees and see which one fits. And we look at the first one. Let me just read to you. You can write down Ezra chapter 1, just the first four verses we're going to look at right now, but let me read it to you. It says, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Again, the Jews are still in captivity, and he makes a proclamation, saying this, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. As a wise king, he knows where his power came from. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem. Cyrus, really? To build him a house at Jerusalem. Notice, it's the temple that we're speaking of. What's even more remarkable is that Isaiah, in chapter 42, some 200 years prior to this, called Cyrus by name before he was even born and told what he was going to do. And then Isaiah, or Daniel, would later look at this Prophecy, and he would show it to the king, and the king was so amazed that God had called him specifically 200 years before he was born what he would do, and he submitted to that. He submitted to that in doing this very thing. Pretty remarkable stuff. And notice what Cyrus said. He has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is among, who is among you of all his people, you captives of, of Babylon, you captives of Jerusalem, or from Jerusalem. Who is among you of all this people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place keep him or help him, excuse me, with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. That's pretty remarkable for a pagan king, wouldn't you say? Isn't it true that sometimes God uses the the unclean things of the world. And he certainly did here. This king was going to make a proclamation and give them everything they need to go and build this house. And so, as you know, they were many left Jerusalem, or Babylon and many came back. Ezra and Nehemiah, they went back to Jerusalem and they began building the house. But there was also another decree. So that was about the house of the Lord, not about 
the, the, the city itself and, the, and the restoring the city and the gates and the street had nothing to do with that, specifically the temple. So when we look at the second decree from Darius the Mede, which was in 519, the scope of his decree was rebuilding, rebuilding of the temple. In fact, he, he just reiterated what Cyrus had said. What Cyrus had, it was written in a scroll and it was brought before Darius and he's like, yes, let's continue this. And I love what he does at the end of Ezra chapter 6. And he, he, he offers this decree and basically it's a, a, a summary of what Cyrus had said before. But now he adds a little bit to it. Notice what he says. He says, also I issue a decree, Darius says, that whosoever alters this edict let a timber be pulled from his house and erected, and let him be hanged on it, and let his house be made a refuse heap because of this. And may the God who causes his name to dwell there destroy any king or people who put their hand to alter it, or to destroy his house, this house of God, which is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, issue a decree. Let it be done diligently. So he just reaffirms what Cyrus before him had said. What an amazing thing. Who would have thought that a, a pagan king would continue something that another pagan king did? But he did. Darius. But again, it was to continue building the temple. Had nothing to do with the city itself and the gates and the wall and the street. Follow me? Because what I want you to see is that Daniel's prophecy said specifically to restore and to build the city. Not the temple. That had already been done. Now it was time to repair the city, to restore it, the gates and the street. <clears throat> so what about this third decree? Artaxerxes, Longimanus, in 458. In Ezra 7 is the reference, you can read it. We won't go there for the sake of time. But the scope of this decree was provision for the priests. The sacrifices, the articles of gold for the house of God, had nothing to do with the building of the rebuilding the city and the streets, and the gates, and the gates. So the, these three can't be the one that he was talking about, but there is one, the final one. <clears throat> Excuse me. Artaxerxes, again, in 445 B.C. It's recorded for us in Nehemiah chapter 2, and we're going to read portions of this because this is the one that Daniel was referring to, this edict. And of course, Artaxerxes wasn't thinking about Daniel's prophecy, he was still a pagan. But little did he know that even the thoughts of his mind and the things that he was going to accomplish, God knew in advance and told Daniel. From the going forth of the commandment to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem shall be 69 weeks of years. And the street and the gates will be fixed and even in troublous times, right? So what does it say in Nehemiah chapter 2? We're just going to look at a couple things here. So in Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah, he was sad. He was standing before the king. He was a cupbearer. And so he said to the king, may the Lord, may the king live forever, Nehemiah said to King Artaxerxes. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? And then the king said, what do you request? Again, another blank check. Amazing, wonder of wonders. What is it that, what is it, what's your request? 
Nehemiah. And so I prayed to the God of heaven. I wonder how long that prayer was. It probably consisted of something like this. Help. Internally, Nehemiah is a very short prayer because the king is saying, what do you request? He's not going to say, give me about 20 minutes. I got to go pray. No, it says he prayed right there on the spot internally, I'm sure. And he's probably saying, Lord, help. What do I say? And then he opens his mouth and it comes forth. And notice, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Rebuild the city, right? Now down in verse 11 of Nehemiah 2, it says, Nehemiah records for us, I came to Jerusalem and, there were, and, and was there for three days, and then I arose in the night and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went by, by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down. Notice, I reviewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates that were burned with fire. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like the, the one that we're looking at? It's this fourth decree. And then I went out to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall... And then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not told the Jews, the priests or the nobles, the officials or the others who did, who did the work. Then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem. Emphasis mine. Build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. That we may no longer be a reproach. Now let's go back to our prophecy in Daniel. Know therefore and understand, the angel tells Daniel, that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be 70 weeks, 62 weeks, in other words, 69 weeks, the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. This is the decree. So if we can figure out when this decree was made, and we do the math, which Jesus expected the Jews to do, it would lead to something very interesting. So the Lord is giving the Jews and us an equation to solve. The 69 weeks of years are weeks of years. So 69 times 7, because there's 7 years in a week of years, correct? So 69 of those times 7 is 483 years. Now they dealt in 360, 360 days of the year. That was their calendar. So if we take 483 times 360, we get a number, and that number is 173,880 days. Specifically, specifically, Right, And this is not too far of a stretch. We know that even in the year of Jubilee, the Jews had seven times seven. It was a week of years. And then on the 50th year, there'd be the year of Jubilee when all the property would be restored back to them of what was bought and sold. You follow me so far? So it's weeks of years. 
And you do the math, it's 173,880 days. So when was this decree to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem by Artaxerxes? When was the date? Sir Robert Anderson wrote a book many years ago called The Coming Prince. And in it, he discovered he was an investigator for Scotland Yard. And he made one of the most interesting discoveries. And that's this that we're looking at right now. One of the most amazing prophecies in the Bible. So if we look at when this decree was made, from the going forth of the commandment until Messiah the Prince. So whatever this date is, if we go forward from that date, 173,880 days, what does this mean over here? What's the significance of this day? I think you know what it is. But it was March 14th, 445 B.C. From this date, this fourth decree, if we go forward 173,880 days, what does that bring us to? It brings us to this very moment that we're looking at now. When Jesus came in and pronounced himself as king, riding into Jerusalem, fulfilling not only Daniel's prophecy, but Zechariah's prophecy, Many other prophecies. He, he did it on that very day. And he said, if you'd have known this your day, but because you haven't and you, you haven't noticed and you didn't take note, your house is left to you desolate. He held them accountable for that. To know the word of God. To know what the scriptures had said. This was a significant scripture even for the Jews. They knew the math. It's not that hard, honestly. 69 times 7 times 360. That's it. 173,880 days. From that moment that decree was made, which we know is now March 14th, 445 BC. So even if, and in God's, um, even if we look at our own calendar, when Jesus rode in on that donkey, excuse me, was April 6, 32 AD. Now, I'll be honest with you, there are a couple of interpretations of this that you may find. Some scholars, they'll, they'll quibble about the exact date, and, and there's a couple of variations, okay, and I'll be honest with you about that. But the, 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 from the moment that that decree was made till Jesus came in, there's no doubt about that. But as you can imagine, because it's so long ago, sometimes there's a little bit of quibbling on a day or two either side. Does that make sense? So don't even worry about that. God knows. We can let those guys hash that out if they ever really know. But I'm going to go by these numbers because I got them memorized in my head. And that was originally discovered by Sir Robert Anderson. But if we look at this just really quickly so you can see the logic behind it. If we look at when that decree was made, 445 B.C. to 32 A.D., that's 476 years. Even in our calendar, you multiply that by 365, that gives us the number you see there. You do the math between March 14th through April 6th, that's another 24 days. Take into account the leap years, you add those up and you come to the exact number. How amazing is that? Is God like having a problem or does he know what he's doing? Even in our own calendar. Did God know that we would be using this Gregorian calendar? He did. And he knew exactly when it was going to be. And Jesus fulfilled that to the T, to the very letter, to the very letter. And notice, as we continue to think, oh, you know, I didn't even put the the slide, sorry about that. I was talking about it, and I didn't have it up on the screen. But there's the math. 
445 B.C. to 32 A.D. And you, you, just, you go through this. And if any of you want this, let me know. I'll send it to you. Because it's important to know, to understand. And hopefully it will encourage you in your study of the Word of God, encourage your faith in the Word of God, that what God says he means, and he means what he says. Does that sound like a good thing? It's a very good thing. But notice what happens after this. So Jesus rides in on the donkey that we're reading now on Palm Sunday. On that very day, he rides in. And what's going to happen? Daniel tells us what happens. Notice, and after the 62 weeks, because he already had the seven weeks and then the, the, the 62 weeks, after that 62nd week, which is really the 69th week, Messiah shall be cut off, meaning he will be executed. But notice, but not for himself. Did that happen less than a week later? It did, didn't it? It happened. Jesus was cut off. And then Daniel goes forward, way forward, to a time yet future to us. Remember when we were in Revelation and we were talking about the 70th week of Daniel? There's one more week of years, right? We looked at the first 69, but there's one more week of years. Now, we're not going to spend any time on that this morning because that's outside of what I really want to share with you. But that one final week of years, that seven-year period, is yet future to us. And he says it right here. And the people of the prince who is to come... Well, actually, I'm sorry, he, he does this in 70 A.D. when the Titus and the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem. Notice, and the people of the prince who was to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That was already fulfilled in 70 A.D. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. And um, actually, it goes on and, and talks about, um, and he, uh, let, let me find it here real quick. Because I, I really wasn't planning on sharing that. Now that I open my mouth, I better talk about it. Uh, and then in verse 27 of Daniel, it says, Then he, speaking of this prince who is to come, and it's not Jesus, it's the Antichrist. We looked at this in detail when we were in Revelation. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be the one who makes desolate. So the 70th week is yet future to us. That final seven-week period, seven years, week of years. Does that make sense? We spent a good deal of time when we were in Revelation upon that. So, so Jesus held them accountable to know that. And you know, I think about us today and... I want to encourage you to believe in the Word of God. Believe in the Word of God. And not only believe it, not only read it and believe it, but do it. See, the problem with many of the Jews is that they had all the knowledge in their head, but they didn't do what they were saying. And I think in in the church, and for me personally, there's always the danger of me being able to speak things and to know things, but not really appropriate them in my life. Does that ring a bell with you at all? Maybe some of you are doing really well, but for me, I find that the more I read the Bible, the more I realize how, fall, how, how far I fall short. But you know what? The Lord loves you. He loves you. 
But there is an accountability, isn't there? There is a accountability to the truth of what you know. And, and not just to know it in your head, but to let it get from here down to here into my heart. Because it's from here that my actions come forth. It's from here, didn't Jesus say, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And whatever I fill myself with in here is going to get down into here and it's going to come out of my mouth. It will come out of my mouth. My actions, my speech. Jesus held them accountable and he holds us accountable, even as Christians. And again, I want to encourage you to believe in the word of God. I don't know about you, but this is fantastic. This is amazing. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus said, for whoever, Luke 12 verse 48, he says, for everyone to whom much is given, for him much will be required. And to him who who much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. Do you believe in Jesus and the word of God? I'd venture to say that probably all of us in this room would say yes. And for those online, hopefully your answer is yes. And I want to encourage you, if the answer is I don't know, I want to encourage you to give your heart to Christ. You're going to have another opportunity as we get into Good Friday and certainly Easter Sunday morning to really consider these things. More so than Christmas, what we celebrate This next Sunday is the most important thing on the calendar for us. More so than Christmas. Yes, more so than Christmas. Because the victory was obtained at the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Amen? More so than his birth. The first century church didn't even celebrate his birth. But do you believe in Jesus and the word of God? Are you living your life for Christ? Give your life to Jesus Christ. Ask him into your heart again. Even if you are a believer of some years, ask him, say, Lord, fill me again. Help me, God. Help me. We live in difficult times. Does anybody need power and strength? Seriously. I need everything I can get. I need everything that God is willing to give to me. And I would ask you to ask the same thing. Lord, give us what we need. Give us what we need. Fill us with your spirit again. Pour out your spirit, God, on us. Give your life to him. And notice this, the greatest evidence of salvation in the life of a person is, is that of a changed life. See, I can say all I want about who I am and who I think I am, but the evidence of it is going to be a changed life. I remember when I got saved, I imagine I was so on fire at that moment when I first realized that I was forgiven of all my sin and God's spirit was in me. I was, I was a banana head. And my family thought so too. They're like, what is the matter with you? We want the old Rob. We can understand him. We don't, know who, we don't even know who this is. They didn't know. They, didn't, they thought I lost my mind. And maybe they thought, well, maybe in time he'll, he'll kind of... It'll dissipate and he'll be back to his old self again. But it never happened. You know why? Because Jesus is inside. His spirit is inside of me and dwelt. 
and for you as well if you're a child of God. But the evidence of it is a changed life. And that's really the message for today. Is your life changed? Are you changing? Are you being conformed to his image? Are you being sanctified, set apart from the world unto God? Are you being set apart? Because you and I both know that we can be on our best behavior for a short time, but a steady, consistent, abiding faith and trust in Jesus is evidence that Christ is in me, that he's in me, that he's in you. Know for sure that you've got him because he loves you and he wants you. In James chapter 1, James exhorts, remember this was Jesus' half-brother. James said, be doers of the word. Would to God that the Jews had been doers of the word because if they were, they would have recognized this day that Jesus rode in on this donkey fulfilling the prophecy of Daniel and Zechariah hundreds of years prior. They didn't. They didn't know. They weren't doers. They, weren't, they didn't put it into action. They just in her head. And see, you and I are no different today. Christians and non-Christians, hopefully the non-Christian will come to Christ, but even as Christians, I need to obey the word of God. Right? I need to listen to it. I need to let it change me. Is it changing you? Is Jesus still changing you? Or have you gotten to a point where you're like, I've gone this far and I'm going no further. And you know what? God is such a gentleman. He's not going to force you to do anything. He's not going to force you to love him. He's not going to force you to serve him. But you know, there's something about when you are changed from the inside and you realize what you've been saved from. Doesn't it create within you a sense of deep gratitude and deep love and reverence and, and, and an abandonment to say, Lord, all that you've done for me, what can I give you? What can I give you, God? And most people think, well, give your money. And hey, listen, God could care less about money. He wants your heart. He wants your life. He's not struggling for money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He made the universe from nothing. Think of that. All the gold in the world, he just said, let it be. And it was. <laughs> He's not struggling. He's not wringing his hands going, boy, we got a deficit this year. He's not concerned one iota. But we are to be doers of the word. Notice in James 1.22, and not hearers only, because when we, when we are just hearers only, we deceive ourselves. We think just because I hear it, and I've heard it, and I've read it, therefore I feel better about myself. Well, that's only half true. It's only part way. Because then you've got to be a doer of what you read. Then you own that scripture. Does that make sense? And you know what I'm talking about. When you are commanded to do something in scripture, even though your feelings, your, even your circumstances are dictating the exact opposite, and you say, Lord, I'm going to do it regardless of how I feel and regardless of my circumstances, because you said for me to do it. I'm going to do it by your grace. And when you reach out and do that, the peace floods in on your life, and usually it won't happen and sometimes, sometimes, until after you've acted in obedience. But up until that moment, boy, your life can be a living hell. Because who is it that wants to keep you from doing the will of God? The enemy of your soul, Satan. There have been times where I've had to go through things, and you have done the same thing too. 
You've been, you're, you're in the process of being obedient to something that God shows you. And all along the way, you are buffeted. You are getting kicked. Everything, and everything is going out of whack. Your, your, your cat's on fire. Your dog ran away from home. Your car blew up. You know, your wife is screaming at you. Your, your water heater, water tank in the basement blew up. Your boss wants to fire you. Just on that one moment, you know, all of a sudden, everything just kind of blows up. Have you experienced? Raise your hand if you've experienced something like that. There is an enemy who wants to keep you from doing the will of God. And most of the time, as you're doing it, you're going to go through it. Sometimes, by God's grace, you just sail straight through, and you look around and you're like, how did I get through that, you know? Have you seen those commercials where a guy's going, you know, he's going like 100 miles an hour in a car down, you know, Fifth Avenue in Manhattan in a busy day. The car's going everywhere, and he's just flying by, not a care of the world, just, you know, 130 miles an hour, going through lights, you know, cars are skidding, and you just, ah, just kind of like, sometimes the Lord allows that in our lives, where we're, we're just sailing through, and we have no concern, not even an awareness of what's going on around us, and other times it feels like we're scraping, scraping, crawling, crawling, and getting beat up, beat up, beat up. You're in good company, because sometimes that happens too. But notice what James says. Be a hearer and not not just a doer only. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he is. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. There is such a blessing for obedience. There's a blessing in knowing the will of God and doing the will of God, right? How many want to do the will of God? Raise your hand. Don't be afraid. We, we do. We want that, don't we? I want the will of God done because I know and I've learned through experience that the blessings are there. It's not always easy to get there, but oh, the peace once you have finally submitted your will. Do you realize that that's most of the battle? Is our will... I'm just a rebellious, nasty person. <laughs> but the moment I surrender, boy, there's great peace. There's a secret in doing what we hear, because if we don't do what we hear, what we hear will fade away, just like a man who sees his face in the mirror, then goes away, and it, it just vanishes from his thoughts. Putting the word in action reinforces, it solidifies our faith. And the truth in our own hearts, and it's also what? It's a great witness to others. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, Jesus was inside ministering, and then his mother and brothers came to him, and, he could not, and, they, and they could not approach him because of the crowd. And it was told by some, saying, who, who said, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you, Jesus. But he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. We hear the word of God. Those are the ones that Jesus calls family. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And my commandments are not burdensome. They're not grievous. Aren't they well entreated? The battle of the will is the hardest. Sometimes doing the very smallest thing can cause a hurricane in your life. With one little act of obedience... Has anybody experienced the hurricane in the life when you try to step out and do something good? When you try to do the right thing, 
all hell breaks loose. But God, but God, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Amen? Never forget that. Never forget that. I don't like spending too much time talking about the devil. I'm very much aware of him and the way he does things. But I don't like to give him too much credit. I like to focus on Jesus. Finally, there's one verse in Acts chapter 1 that I'd like to share with you, and then we'll end for this morning. It's in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus is speaking to his disciples after his resurrection. Let me read it to you. It's really fascinating. And I would encourage you to go to this verse right now, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, because I want you to underline something that's going to be, perhaps change your perspective. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus, speaking to his disciples after his resurrection, he said this, verse 8. But you, disciples, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. We looked at that last week when we were in John. Obviously, we're taking a break in the book of John, but we talked about the baptism of the Spirit last week. And we referenced this verse. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. It would, it would come 50 days later from the moment he was crucified on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. The Spirit of God would be poured out on those believers. And notice what he said. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And notice, and here's what you want to underline, and you shall be witnesses to me. Underline to me. To me, God says. Not to others. Isn't that shocking? You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Why is that such a big deal? Well, normally when we think of being a witness, we think of being a witness to other people, which is good. We should be that. But notice what he said to them. He says, when the Spirit of God has come upon you on this day of Pentecost, you shall be witnesses to me. They were going to witness to God. What? Why do we need to witness to you, God? You're the one who poured it out on us. You know what it is? It's an investment. Isn't that what the Spirit of God indwelling us is? And upon us, especially in us, it's, it's the earnest. It's the down payment when you put a down payment on something, don't you have an expectation of that down payment? And so Jesus is saying, in a sense, what I'm going to do in you, I want to see a return on that investment. Not in some kind of legalistic thing. Don't, don't misunderstand me, okay? You pray and you rest in him and then be led by him. And then you do those things. You don't, don't try to make some kind of formula. That, 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 that's where the church gets all messed up because we, we get into this rules and regulations. I got to do this. I got to do that. And if I don't do that, boy, I'm going to be frowning and everyone's going to be frowning at me as well because I didn't do what I should be doing and I know I'm not doing what I should So leave me alone. Have you felt that way? Or have you been around people who are like that? They're not really walking in the spirit. It's just a bunch of rules and regulations, legalism. And boy, when they fall short, they just make everybody's life a living hell. the wonderful peace of grace. You shall be witnesses to me. God is saying, 
I'm looking for the return on that investment that I've placed within you, that earnest, that down payment on you. I want to see what I've done. I want to see what it's going to do in your life. I want to, I want to see it. I want to behold it. You're going to be witnesses. That's what a witness is. I want to see it. I want to see what I've done in your life. I want to see it. That brings joy to the heart of God. And trust me, actually don't trust me. I'll just tell you. If you're a witness to God, you'll have no problem being a witness to man. Do you understand? Again, it's a relationship, the vertical relationship. See, we like to get everything square here and then somehow think we can get this square. It doesn't work that way. That's why us as Christians, that's why it's so important for us to be in the Word, to believe the Word, and have a sense of assurance and of peace. And spending that time with the Lord that you need every day, because when you do that, guess what? You're working on this vertical relationship between you and Him. And when that's fine, trust me, every, don't trust me, everything else on the, on the horizontal is going to go so much better, because you're walking in the Spirit. You, you, God is already speaking to you. He's already got you pieced out. You're settled. You're more settled than you were. Trust me, there's something about the truth that settles me. It's when I'm lied to that, I, that I'm unsettled. Can anybody say amen to that? When I'm lied to or I feel like I'm getting lied to, there's no peace at all. I'm unsettled. But when I'm reading the truth of the word of God, there's peace in my heart. Even if it's a difficult topic like Revelations chapter 6 through 19, which I know that you all loved as we went through it. The plagues upon the earth. <laughs> Good heavens. But there's still peace because you know that God is in control, right? There's a peace. You have the peace with God, and therefore you have the peace of God. I love that. But that relationship, we have to get that squared away. So I want to encourage you this morning to just very simply, you know, as we looked at this passage in Matthew and the prophecy behind it, And the fact that the Jews didn't adhere to it. They weren't watching. They weren't listening. And you know, I don't blame them too much because I'm pretty much cut of the same thing. Are you? Even as a Christian, I can find myself kind of getting lulled to sleep. And why do I say this? I just want to stir you up a little bit. To stir you up a little bit. To stoke the fire. To get those pokers and and start doing that with a fire and get those coals red hot again and then throw another log on the fire hallelujah let's have a bonfire and have s'mores that's what we need need to be obedient to him i need to believe what he says but not just to believe it but to do it will you do that with me i'm not asking you to make an oath of any kind Make it your purpose of your heart this week. This is a significant week. Take the time, especially this week, but every week really, but especially this week, get alone with the Lord. Read the Gospels. Reread these things. Maybe even rewatch this thing again, this message. Listen to it again. Look at the scriptures. Go back and spend a little more time. Look at those decrees and find out for yourself what the Word of God says. And be convinced in your own heart. And it brings a peace, doesn't it? That my Father cares for me. It brings a peace. When I'm secure in his love. Isn't that what you all want anyway? I want a peace. I want security. 
in a world that seems to be the antithesis of that. But yet we can find it in Christ. We can find it in his word. Let's do it together, folks. Shall we? Let's do it together this week. Spend time with the Lord. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, just for the veracity of it, the truthfulness of it. We thank you, God, that you are sovereign over all things. And we pray that, God, you would continue, Lord, to work in our lives, that you'd strengthen our faith, that you'd give us boldness again. And that, Lord, we would be doers of your word, not hearers only. Lord, help me to do that. Change us, Lord. Change me, God. And bless my brothers and sisters. I pray that, God, you would this day fill them, revealing even more of your love for them. That, Lord, you're not, you're no long, you're, you're not angry with us, Lord. The enmity that we had against you was settled once and for all on the cross of Jesus. Lord, you no longer look at us as rebels. You look at us as sons and daughters for those who have given their heart to you. Lord, may we follow you all the days of our life and give you everything, our whole heart. May we give you our whole heart in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.